0: Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today, we are talking about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the 1969 film directed by George Roy Hill, written by William Goldman. I'm joined by the Lessons from Screenplay team, Tricia Arand.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Calleros. Hi. So we're doing something a little different with this episode. So what we're going to be trying is occasionally we're going to have one of the team members choose a film that we think everybody on the team should watch, and then we'll watch it and discuss and so, Trisha, you chose Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid for everyone to talk about. Why did you choose this film?
1: Well, of course, this film is notorious for a number of reasons, but especially for its screenplay like it it often pops up in screenwriting books and in conversations about like the greatest screenplays ever written and um of course, at the time too, it was like the biggest spec like spec sale ever of a like bill Goldman wrote this movie and he sold like as an original screenplay and he like sold it for I think it was four hundred thousand dollars at the time which is like it you know it's kind of the myth of a like million dollar spec and um And then, of course, it won a bunch of Oscars, too. So it's just a a landmark in cinema history and, of course, is still so enjoyable to watch today and just, I think, holds up really well. But I also picked it because I figured we would have a variety of takes.
0: Because you knew I'd never (laughs) seen it.
1: Well, yeah, there's also that.
2: (laughs) So you too, Michael, you also hadn't seen it?
0: Yeah. So this is one, again, as you're saying, Trisha, it shows up in screenwriting books a lot. And I had encountered scenes from it, I think in John York's book. And upon reading that scene, I was like, oh, this seems like a really interesting movie. Like I should see it one day. So when you suggested and I was actually excited because I'd been wanting to see it. Um,
2: So, yeah, Alex, you had also not seen it before. I had also not seen it. It was also an embarrassing Movie it's I had not so
1: seen. embarrassing for you two right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Everyone that's listening that has seen it or has not seen it, I think. Tweet at, at @trish. Why and Brian. would they be
1: listening if they haven't seen it? Spoilers, so many spoilers, you guys, if you have <laughs> seen <coming>. it. <laughs> sure. So, but I would love to hear what you guys thought about it, Alex, what'd you think?
2: I really loved it. Yeah, it was Yay. I I didn't really know what to expect. I it was one of those things where because it's like a cultural touchstone you just hear about things from the movie without understanding the context so my dad always complained about actually some of the Burt Backrack music
1: of course
3: (laughs)
2: and (laughs) and how he thought it was like so so silly to have that scene with raindrops falling on my head with the with a bicycle and I was like what are you talking about the sequence where it becomes like a Muppet movie for a little bit (laughs) right so like but I never understood like what kind of movie this was because it looked like a western but then there's a scene with a bicycle with the raindrops keep falling on my head. Like, what is this film? <laughs> but once I saw it and saw the context of it, I, I realized this is really interesting. I don't know. I, I was thinking about the time it came out in 1969 mm-hmm. and how it's this almost like, it's like a hippie take on the Western. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's like this kind of free love, like, ah, oh, let's like, let's not work for the man. Let's, you know, kind of, drop out I don't know there's there's there was kind of this ethos in the movie that was like it was like remixing a western for 1969 and so I really appreciated totally. that and was like so into that once I realized that's kind of what was going on in this movie
1: yeah Michael
2: yeah I found it very enjoyable and
0: similarly I'd, I'd heard a lot about it and had forgotten that the raindrops keep falling on my head was in this movie <laughs> so when it started I like It was shocking for sure because it feels it does feel kind of out of step and it's not a short sequence like that's one of the things I was there are several sequences in this movie where it kind of just becomes an interlude that I expect to be like a 22nd montage but it just keeps going and going <laughs>
2: the oh, like, like the the new york sepia photo montage in the middle mm. right
0: it's like now we're gonna travel to Bolivia, but in the meantime here's a slideshow of like everything they did in new york here's and the opening
4: it's... of cheers
1: <laughs> i <laughs> <Right>. mean seriously
0: <laughs> and it's it's really fascinating and like it's cool to watch but it goes on long enough that i was like is this like, is this just what the rest of the movie is? Like, is, this, right. is it going to right. stop at, at some point? But no, I, I really enjoyed it. I think the characters are obviously really, really fun to watch. Uh, Paul Newman and and Robert Redford, who I'm now um, convinced
4: is who they used to clone Brad Pitt. Of, of course. course. Oh, my God. Yeah.
2: In this movie, it's like, wait, is this Brad Pitt? Like, what is happening? What, when I saw Spy
4: did... Game, I was like, are they the same person?
2: Yeah, totally. (laughs) It's really freaking me out.
4: And then when I saw uh, the first photo from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I was like, it has been completed. (laughs) (laughs) Brad Pitt is now Robert Redford. (laughs) It's like, yeah, it's, it's so true. So yeah, I, I thought it was really
0: fun. It was interesting, you know, to learn, you know, it's loosely based on fact. And so it was right. interesting to learn about. Extremely loosely. Right. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was interesting. And the thing I got most excited about was when Conrad Hall's name came up as a cinematographer. Of
3: course. Because
0: mm. I'd forgotten that he had done this film and like Conrad Hall's one of the best cinematographers yes. of all time. Yes. And there's, you know, the opening sequence where you meet Sundance Kid while he's playing poker and the so way it's good. shot and like the sepia and the super high contrast it was like oh this is really really cool bold filmmaking and like it's lingering on these shots for a really long time so yeah overall I was I enjoyed it a lot there were some weird structural things that I'm curious to talk about but overall <laughs> it was it was definitely fun
4: yeah for me it was it's a movie I had seen before um but it had been a long time I think it was back in my early twenties I just started like burning through all of the the like big big movies that you're supposed to see right exactly um and I loved it then but I just haven't seen it since and it is one of those movies you know like you were talking about Tricia, that just comes up in every screenwriting book ever it's sort of I love that the movie's exactly 110 minutes so it's sort of like it it like basically (laughs) is the the prototypical you know screenplay and movie and uh, but yeah watching it again I just really uh I just really loved it I think it's the pacing is great I just love any movie that you could watch from a long time ago that still feels uh, part of it is because movies are trying to be this movie (laughs) but like but a movie that just feels like yeah maybe there's like weird music choices or weird montage things or whatever but for the most part feels like i'm watching a movie that could have been made this year in terms of its pacing and um and just the overall plot and all that kind of stuff and i did have a weird moment with the with the sepia tone uh during the the opening sequence where i was like did I forget this entire movie is like in? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, um, and then it kind of cut to color, it like faded into color. And I was like, okay, good. <laughs> Cause I was like, did my brain completely erase this fact about this movie?
1: <laughs> Definitely. Some bold stylistic choices were being made throughout this film mm. for sure. So, and I actually, I, I like all the weirdness of it. Like me too. for me, for me, the 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 anachronistic music and the weird montages and like I love that piece of music when they're in Bolivia and it's just like the voices. <laughs> oh yeah, the like yeah. goofy like sort of choral version of they're just like da 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 da. Yeah,
2: so that bossa nova like I- <laughs> thing. Yeah.
1: I love all that stuff. I-, I mean, that I think is why it remains so iconic is that they were. You know, um, George Roy Hill was really doing some unexpected things. And and part of it, like, you know, um, if you know anything about like the making of this movie, like part of it was um, some some choices were made for like kind of convenience and, and like where they were shooting and how they were shooting. So like the montage in New York was on the Hello Dolly set, which was like right next door to theirs. Mm, um, oh, funny. Yeah. And they were like, hey, let's just go over there. But they they wouldn't let them shoot any like actual scenes or film on the sets so they were like let's just send the cast over there and we'll take a bunch of still photographs of them and like do a montage instead of like shooting scenes and some other stuff with like all their on location they did obviously mostly shot on location in the west and so you know practical decisions but also just if you're gonna make yeah sort of this anachronistic goofy kind of western like almost anti-western western then, why not kind of make some off the wall choices? and I think that's why like we still talk about it
4: yeah like i I tend to not like a lo- those kinds of choices usually, but I think what why it works here is because they're consistent for the most part like right. mm-hmm. the the sort of montage in the middle of the movie is similar to the montage at the beginning, and like the song montage. <laughs> like the raindrops fall, keep falling my head kind of gets repeated in the second half of the movie um, during some of like the bank robbery montage and that kind of thing. So it's like, okay, we did a weird thing, but we're doing that the whole movie. Mm-hmm. It's not like a Django Unchained where it's like every five minutes I'm going to just make a completely bonkers choice with the music and it's going to have nothing to do with anything else and like just completely takes me out of the movie when something like that happens but i think as long as it's consistent you can make those choices and i'm like okay i'm here yeah when i feel like it also it doesn't feel out of step with the
0: rest of the tone like i think the characters and the way they interact you know again that's almost like the counter westernness of it is like they're so goofy and funny and there's all this wit. i love the that scene where Paul Newman and, and Robert Redford arrive back at like their group and a new guy's taken over. And so Paul Newman it's a is a uh,
1: wonderful scene.
3: It's yeah.
0: like one of the best scenes I've ever yeah. seen. <laughs> like, it's, just, <laughs> it's so good because you, you know, he's this big scary person and you really have this like doubt, like, is Paul Newman going to be able to handle this? And like, he's trying to talk his way out of it. And once that doesn't work, it's like, Oh, how's it going to. And then, you know, he, <laughs> he does his like trickery stuff. I don't know. It's one of those things where you going back and seeing early versions of things that clearly spawned so many other inspirations, obviously yeah. is always really fun. Uh, I was constantly thinking about like oceans 11, of course and ice mm-hmm. movies. Yeah. And obviously the sting then came out like, a few years after this, which so uh, yeah, just having those really fun characters uh, is something that also feels like has, has aged beautifully. Cause it's just so, so good.
1: Yeah. I love that choice at the very beginning in the scene that you're talking about where Butch is facing down with Logan and um, Logan is like, you know, probably going to like, we it's exactly what you're saying. Like this guy's got to rip him apart. Like he's huge and he's got this huge knife. And then, you know, Butch just kicks him in the ball. <laughs> it's such a great character choice it's that thing that you always hear about in screenwriting which is like when you introduce your character have them make a choice and you have that earlier in this the like Sapiatone tone scene where we first meet butch and sundance and that's but that's really more of like the sundance intro right that right. kind of like is more mm-hmm. about who sundance is than it is about who butch is and so having that sequence is just like a perfect way for us to like see how conflict avoidant butch is like He absolutely does not. He does not have pride. He does not need to win. He absolutely does not want to deal with conflict, and will do anything he can to get out of it. They had the real Butch Cassidy's sister on set with them for like most of the time. Um, That's weird. Isn't that crazy? She was
2: still alive. What? Yeah, Yeah, because
1: because this (laughs) takes place like at the turn of the century. It's like it's not traditional, like old west, like eighteen. 50s, like 40s or 50s, or even like uh-huh. 1860s, which is sometimes when you think of that. But it's like it was actually like 1900 pretty much when this was okay. when um the real thing happened. And she was a lot younger than Butch. She was only like six years old when he left home. Anyway, um, but they wrote letters like for the rest of his life. He was like sending her letters from South America, because they spent like eight years or something in South America, Butch and Sundance did. But um, so she was on set and she was there that day when they were shooting that scene and you know paul newman just like walks up and like kicks this guy and then like hits him in the face and, and she was she started laughing and she was like my brother would love this like
2: <laughs> oh that's so cool that's amazing i had no idea there was actually family involved with the production yeah. <laughs> oh yeah that's crazy it,
1: it was a really big deal because they wanted her to like she could easily you know if she'd been unhappy she could potentially have like sued them or trashed the movie or whatever so they like wanted to keep her really happy um actually she and robert redford became like really good friends because they were both living like out in wyoming or wherever it is that they were living she kind of i don't know like held them hostage a little bit because they wanted her to endorse the movie and she was like well just like i'll watch it and then i'll let you know if if i like it or whatever and they didn't want to show it to her before the premiere and so she basically was like well okay i'll say that i like it then if you'll just pay me for it and so (laughs) she just like kind of extorted money out of the studio to like sign up on the movie but i know she's (laughs) truly butch cassidy's sister
0: another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check kind of returning to the character thing again and, and what you were saying earlier, Trisha, of, of how it's in all these screenwriting books. I think in York's um, book, he's using it as an example of breaking down characters' facades. And so I'm remembering that incorrectly. But I so I sort of had that in my head mm. going into the film and watching. There are several scenes that I think are just a really good example of that, of putting a character in a situation where they're you're forcing them to make a choice and it's a choice that reveals a really interesting part of their character. And so, yeah, there's that, the sepia introduction of Sundance where he's playing poker and the guy accuses him of cheating. And so he's like, is offended by that. And so demands that the person invite them to stay and just like the the tension that comes from that, but also it shows you so much of his his character, again, with the, the kicking the balls Guy. Uh the the <laughs> Newman fight. But the the two uh really great examples, I think, are the midpoint where they jump right into the river and we can talk about that. You know, the big reveal there is that Sundance doesn't know how to swim. Mm-hmm. And just like the dialogue and the back and forth is just so much fun. Like I, I think that was what was refreshing to me about it is that it's it's forcing them to make a choice, but not in a like torturous like awful way it was like a fun banter way right. where it's the two of them having fun but they're getting closer to revealing this hard truth and then finally it comes out that he can't swim and it's well the fall is probably going to kill you which is also just <laughs> such a hilarious one of those classic ones yeah <laughs> and then later on there's the paul newman reveal which is a bit darker i well i guess not darker in some ways where he says i've never killed anyone before right kind yeah of, like those are just such cl- like great Crystal clear examples of how to construct a scene to reveal a really important like aspect of a of a character and this kind of interesting contradiction that they have.
4: Right. Yes. It's also interesting that you get this sense that they've been working together forever, and then of course all the reveals like they don't know these basic things about each other. They don't even know each other's names, yeah. <laughs> like where they're from or anything like that. And I just think that's such an interesting choice. And then, yeah, you talk about the banter, like the comedy in this movie is is great. It's sort of, it's funny because the only, not the only other William Goldman movie I know, but the one I know the most is Princess Bride. Of course. And what's interesting about that movie is I remember the first time watching it being like, is it a fantasy or is it a spoof of a fantasy? I'm not quite sure. And it sort of walks the line between this like fantasy and romance mm-hmm. and comedy and almost like an 80s spoof of itself. And. This movie it's a very different movie obviously but this movie kind of does a similar thing where it's like it's not only a western it's not only a crime heist kind of movie it's not only a buddy comedy but it's like a amazing version of all of those things at once which is pretty cool.
1: Totally.
2: One thing I really love is how there's kind of a sense that maybe because of the time it takes place in the more turn of the century like the old west has kind of just fallen into a routine and like yeah. nobody's kind of impressed anymore so it's <laughs> like you know th- there's a train robbery and the train conductor is like, I want to see. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of just like a show for the people now. It's like so standard. Yeah. And in the way that you know, the, t- the sheriff in the town is trying to rile I up.
1: love that.
2: Rile up the crowd to like go take down the bad guys. And they're like, eh, like, yeah. here's a bike. Let's, let's, uh, bike salesman, take the stage. <laughs> so just kind of a sense of like all these things that are the staples of the old Western kind of are boring now to the people even in the movie of just like, yeah, we've done that, like moving on.
1: Right. And of course, the choices that the characters make, again, are are messing with your expectations of like what a Western is, because like they just run away. Like (laughs) they, you know, every every Western is about, you know, bad guys that like won't leave town or that like, you know, go out in a blaze of glory. And of course, they eventually sort of do, but they don't want to die. So they just run away. And and when Bill Goldman wrote the script, that was the thing that he was most interested in. He was researching, you know, the real people. And he was like, this is the kind of story you never hear. Like, Old West heroes don't go like this. They don't just peace out and go to Bolivia and, like... You know, eventually they were actually like more notorious in Bolivia at a certain, you know, like in South America at a certain point than they had ever been in the Old West because it was like at the time kind of hard to market for that reason. Bill Goldman had a hard time selling the script because producers didn't like that. Because, of course, how do you sell it? Like, how do you sell a Western that's not really a Western (laughs) and has like all of these anachronisms and has kind of a cowardly protagonist and like this crazy t- twist in the middle where they we're like it's actually sort of at the beginning of the third act where they just like leave and then they're on a different continent and there's none of the same characters it's it's just like a little bit challenging and so the fact that it turned out to be exactly what everybody didn't know they wanted.
2: And so much of its power comes from the, uh, the fact that you are expecting one thing and then consistently get something else. Like that's where Mm. so many of my laughs came and so much like pleasure came from watching this movie where like, yeah, you're like, okay, now there's gonna be a whole knife fight scene. It's going to be like, (laughs) like drawn out and like a whole fight. And then it's just over because this is a different take on the Western. This is not going to be the standard thing. And I, I, I was consistently delighted because it was overturning my expectations of the usual Western thing. So yeah. that might have been its, its superpower ultimately was that everybody knows what's supposed to happen in a Western and it consistently screws with that in a really pleasurable way.
1: The element of surprise is exactly. definitely loaded into this movie.
4: One thing I would say that it does do as well, if not better than a lot of Westerns is the the landscape and the scope and yeah, you know, just the cinematography as you were talking about, Michael, like I, I was constantly impressed with these shots that were there on one ridge and they're looking over a chasm over at, you know, who are those guys? Like they're on <laughs> this other, they're like so far away. And of course it's all timed out perfectly so they can get that shot and they can get that zoom and that stuff's not easy. The coordination yeah. yeah, exactly. And then even when they are just like in front of like the house where the three of them, where, where Etta lives, basically, like there's the one shot where they come home and she and Sundance are outside and then Butch is inside through the window and you just mm-hmm. like notice him in the shot. And like even in those moments, it doesn't matter if they're on a set or on location, like they just really use the space and show as much in the scene as possible to just really, it just really makes everything feel so immersive.
1: I mean- It is one of the best sequences in cinema history as far as I'm concerned. That long, long, long chase. It's Mm. like almost (laughs) half an hour of the movie. And I love how it's shot. I love how it's paced because it just has this relentlessness to it that makes you feel like if you're going to have them leave and go to South America, you have to really sell that they cannot stay on the continent, right? Like, there has to be this super posse that's coming to get them and they're never going to quit ever. And they can track them over any distance and they'll find them no matter where they go. And so you have to have that. And by just drawing out that chase and also never showing the super posse up close, Mm. like we never get to see the faces of those guys. Right? There's this utter seriousness to the way that the movie treats them. Like even when Butch and Sundance are being flippant about them, it's just like, And they're, you know, they're going, who are those guys? It's still that feeling of they will kill us. They will catch us. They will kill us unless we really get out of here.
4: Right. And it almost, it almost makes the, those guys more, Yes. It just is scarier. You know, you don't have these like. Now we're going to look at what the guys chasing them are up to for the next five minutes. Not kind of thing. It's just like these lights in the distance, you know. Mm-hmm. And then you hear like the tale of Lafour's and the tale of Lord Voldemort, <laughs> <laughs> and and it just sort of like it just makes it it makes them so much scarier than if you were just like going back and forth and like watching. You know, like I feel like when I a lot of movies when it goes to the like, here's the antagonist and like what they're up to. I'm just like, I don't care. Like, I'm not worried about this right now. Some movies do that beautifully, obviously, but there's some movies that are just like, I guess we should show the other guys. Why not? And the fact that they never show those guys and you just hear these like tales about them makes them so much more threatening.
0: I feel like they're so threatening. Like, like as you were saying, Trisha, it's such an effective scene. Like every time the chase kept happening, you know, it would cut and now they're still being chased. My brain would sort of be like, oh, okay, we're still doing this, but like, we're still doing this. Like I want right. to know. And it was just so effective to the point where I forget exactly what moment, but I was watching it with my girlfriend and it cut to them. They were looking over and like the people come over the hill and both of us yell us, like, they're still coming. Like what? <laughs> like it really, it's so effective and put you in those shoes. And I think the thing that was uh kind of came out of left field for me is i i was really excited about okay well now i'm really invested in watching them figure out how to take these people down mm. like i can't wait for when the like the fight actually happens and we see mm-hmm. how they manage to think their way into a cool you know trickery of how to defeat these people and then it was like interlude we're going to bolivia right and so that was you know i I think it still works and then once you get to Bolivia, there's lots of interesting things happening but that was a thing that i was disappointed by because the buildup was so effective that i was like okay i may have never wanted to see the protagonist fight the antagonist more than this right right
4: now it basically does the no country for old men thing which is like we want you to feel like this thing is supposed to happen because then we're going to take it away from you on purpose Mm -hmm.
1: yeah exactly and again messing with your expectations of a Western. We're expecting like the high noon showdown, you right. know, in the street. And instead we just get on a boat and go to a different country. And I do love that it is like the super posse that catches up to them eventually. Like they actually catch up to right. them in Bolivia. They come back, you know. Um, but for like a long time we are left trying to make sense of like, well, what is this story now? What is this movie now? And and what does that kind of like suggest to us thematically, I guess. And so like, it kind of leaves you in the way that no country does leaves you like looking at all the pieces and having to kind of put them together for yourself about what this is saying.
0: Yeah. You were just talking about the, the cinematography and, and the directing of these kind of long takes that really use like the widescreen format also, where it's like, it's always the three of them. And again, Conrad Hall, is amazing. Road to Perdition and American Beauty were his last two films. Incredible. So if you've seen them, you understand how amazing he is. Uh, And I also like that that's when they like meet back up with Catherine Ross and she has this line that I just think is hilarious, which is like, I'm 26 and I'm single and I'm a school teacher and that's the bottom of the pit. (laughs) I just thought that was such a funny.
1: She's so wonderful in this. I love her. I adore her. Well, I like... We haven't really gotten to talk too much yet about like a good three-hander, you know, mm-hmm. a, a really good three-hander movie where you have three great roles and like great relationships that are being explored. And this is a really good one. Like you absolutely have to have the the school teacher, that female character person that's balancing out this sort of like bromance that's happening over here. <laughs> and like right. I, but I I love this is one of these movies where I think the temptation Is to, and not saying this is like a bad convention, but the temptation is to like make it a love triangle where she like splits them apart and then they have to like be friends again or like have something else that like splits them apart and then they have to like reconcile at the end. This movie doesn't do that, it pits them as a unit up against the world, essentially. Those are some of the most fun movies that like. The three of them as a unit, but especially Butch and Sundance, obviously, their relationship is just what makes this so delightful to watch. And it would be a lot more tired and boring if you had to have the obligatory. We're like, well, now they're in a fight. And now by the end, they're going to like resolve it. It's much more interesting to have that be like this external conflict.
2: There's kind of a sweetness to their three way
1: They're adorable. Whatever, whatever they got going there. Yeah, it's so cute.
4: I think it's another thing this movie does well, which is that sort of like it doesn't answer, it, just like it doesn't answer the questions about like the super posse, it also doesn't really go deep into that. Like you have, you raise that question at the end of the the raindrops keep falling in my head montage of like, would we be together in a different world? And then it's mm-hmm. like, when you even when you have the photo montage where they're traveling and everything, you, you <laughs> see them dancing and then you see Butch, he's just kind of like looking at them and he kind of, then like the next shot, he kind of, is like looking down a little and then the next shot he's just kind of smiling and it's like just that little moment of like maybe he wishes something but you don't get that and the the movie just sort of feels like it's this bigger story that you're just seeing this you're seeing the last chapter of basically which i think is really cool Also, there's this deleted scene. Have you seen this, Trisha?
1: Probably.
4: It's on the Blu-ray where they're in Bolivia and they're in a movie theater. Oh, yeah. And yeah. And and Etta basically says, like, I think I should leave. Like, I'm going to go to the station. They're
1: watching a movie about themselves. There's like... Well,
4: right. At first, they're not. And then they, like, start to leave. And then a movie about Butch and Sundance comes on, like, in Spanish and everything. And they're watching the screen. And they're like, wait, that didn't happen. And they're basically bad guys in the movie. Like, they're just, like, murdering people. It's like all the scenes. you've seen but they're just being like you know more murderous more criminal and then she walks out and like they are like not paying attention to her anymore and she walks out and then the rest of the scene it goes on for like another minute and it's just intercutting between them watching the screen complaining and her just like walking down the street all by herself and like that's probably the last time you're supposed to see her in the movie that was
1: her original send-off where it was like she because we don't we don't actually get a goodbye scene um, right. with Etta in, in the movie the way that it is cut now. Um, but that was going to be her original send off. And I like the the choice to remove it. Um, and again, to leave it even more ambiguous of like, sure. when did she leave? Exactly. Why did she leave? And how right. did she leave? And um, I love the, the scene where she's just like, you know, I said I wouldn't watch you die. So I'm going to go right because i know that that's where this is heading right right i think it's really poignant
4: yeah i but i do like that it sort of drives home that they are more interested in this thing than this other thing you know so like i'm not saying like it definitely should have been back in but it just it was like watching it after having watched the movie was like ah that kind of gave me like a little a little icing on the cake um real quick has anybody seen the movie bandits yes I figured There's you would. There's no have.
1: chance that Michael has seen that movie. I'm
4: uh, typing it into IMDb
0: B A N D I T S. <laughs> the 2001 film? Yes. That's the one. Directed by Barry Levinson? Yeah.
4: Correct. Yep. Yeah. Starring Bruce Willis. Go on. <laughs> Kate Blanchett and um, Billy Bob Thornton. And it's basically like, I feel like it must have been like inspired to almost be like a like an alternate universe yeah. uh butch and sundance because basically the two guys are bank robbers and they take kate Blanchett hostage and then she ends up falling in love with both of them
1: mm-hmm. uh and
4: then the entire movie is just sort of about this like three-way like this thruple that they sort of become <laughs> like which
1: is kind of what this is yeah
4: yeah exactly so it's almost like if, if butch and sundance took that question that it asks and actually answered it throughout the course of like a a separate movie basically that's kind of what bandits is also bandits is really fun check it out
1: I think there is this temptation when we're writing movies to want to define everything nice and neatly, right? especially when we get into some some relationships and stuff like this. Again, if this movie had been in some substantial way about the Butch and Sundance relationship, which I think is maybe arguable, but that's not where the conflict comes from. So there's no need to define it further. If the source of conflict or like the main engine driving the like character arcs was the relationship and like twists and turns in a relationship, then you would absolutely need to concern yourself as a screenwriter with finding some kind of like resolution and by that I mean some kind of definition of the way that the relationship actually functions right and so that's like a a relationship drama is a wonderful plot device in a drama but in a comedy western you don't need that as a plot device and so the film just kind of lets that go and, and doesn't concern itself with like putting this relationship into a box of any kind. That's actually refreshing. We love seeing relationships that, that aren't fraught, right? Where right. like it becomes about this, will they, won't they? If they do, what it'll be like? All that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah. I was going to say one of the notes I took while watching it was like, this is just so lovely and relaxing in Mm -hmm. a way. Like, yeah, I I, I love that. I can just kind of relax while watching this Western in in a way that's not like I'm bored, but like I'm just I know it's going to be just pleasurable and enjoyable. And I'm not going to have to like tense up and like brace myself for like something awful to happen any second. Like I can kind of just almost like watching Scott Pilgrim or one of these movies that is just Mm -hmm. pure joy. Uh, like there are real stakes in this movie and like we were talking about the bad guys are really scary and bad but still the way the characters are treating even really intense situations is fun and and it's also like maybe once again a sign of the times of like the way that they treat friendship and romantic relationships and things is also kind of loose and chill and kind of just like <laughs> yeah. whatever man like right. you know don't be a square like just kind of go with the flow there's right. kind of like just a really A really lovely, uh, not worrying about the small stuff, just kind of like, yeah, just go with it.
4: I also think that, like, that levity throughout the film also then allows them to give weight to certain moments when they want to, like the moment where he says, I've never actually killed anybody before. Suddenly you're like, oh crap, like, we're not just watching these like crazy criminals who run around and like do the stuff. It's like we're watching people who are kind of almost like pretend grifters you know like they're just like vulnerable tr- they're just they're vulnerable they're humans and it's it's interesting and so poignant i think that the film gives more weight to that moment than it does to their own deaths yeah yeah they know they're gonna go die and they're just like joking the entire time because that's who these characters are and i think that like one of the moments where you suddenly go oh crap is the moment where they're like oh we have to murder people like we have to murder other right robbers now like it's not like they're you know murdering just like random people in the street or anything but it's just like they're not happy about that they don't want it to happen and i feel like that you're allowed to give that moment more weight when it's the entire movie like you were saying alex isn't like fraught with you know everything is is so tense
1: yeah and i think that there's a direct response in this movie to a movie that came out two years before this, which was Bonnie and Clyde. So sure, Bonnie man. and Clyde came out right before this. And basically that film was like a huge hit, like critically acclaimed and all of this stuff and like made the careers of, of Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. And like, was this like landmark film. And of course it was about notorious bandits. And so you have this expectation sort of going into Butch and Sundance of like notorious bandits who meet like a violent end, right? That there's, perhaps going to be this like serious look at crime or or something like that um and the movie like butch and sundance is almost like a rebuke to the that kind of movie and that kind of like Mm -hmm. meditation on like crime and like outlaw kind of mentality and outlaw behavior because Butch and Sundance are just bad at, like, being outlaws, essentially, and robbers, (laughs) and they don't take themselves that seriously, and they don't even take their own deaths that seriously, and they're not doing it for, like, fame or notoriety. Again, going, going back to, like, Bonnie and Clyde, which is about, like, people who, you know, relish being famous and notorious and feared and all this kind of stuff, like, posing for pictures with their victims and things like that. That's Bonnie and Clyde. And then you have this and they're just like we would love to be anonymous and for no one to know who we are and um, fade away and just like go to Bolivia but unfortunately we're bad at all careers except for Robin Banks pretty much <laughs> right? It, it's
2: kind of funny it's like they're not in it for any reason besides they're just not really interested in normal jobs and
1: they're, yeah. and
4: they, and they're good at this one thing so it's like I guess we got to do this totally another moment that I just want to call out which is we're talking about the how the movie sort of lets you do a lot of the work yourself um, where, you know, you don't have to know exactly what this relationship – you don't have to know exactly how they got from point A to point B. The montage where they are – where basically, like, is on board now, which also she looks badass in her, like, full cowboy, like, <laughs> gangster. Uh, She's
1: amazing, yeah.
4: But then when they go to the to the bank and they're, like, a couple and you don't hear a word of dialogue. You just hear the music. But you know – exactly what happens like they went to the guy and said we want to do stuff here but we're not sure if your bank is good enough we're gonna to have to inspect your vault all that kind of stuff and then he turns and then the look on the guy's face when he turns he's just like okay yep <laughs> it's perfect
1: and now i'm being robbed Yeah, but i
4: just love the choice to have zero dialogue going over that even though we are what the sting does this also which is the same direct yeah. the other movie with the the um paul newman and robert redford which is the sort of like you are seeing people talk like you are seeing their mouths move but you don't you're not hearing the words they're saying and you realize you don't need to all the time and i just think that's cool
0: i really like talking about their their final scene together the the finale they are not taking it seriously like quote unquote but i feel like i was actually very moved by that whole exchange yes and and the the build-up that the movie does where they're trapped and you know if you don't know what's coming you're sort of like okay well it seems like they're not going to get out of it but maybe there's some like fun way like he's Paul Newman's doing his thing where he's got to go and get the ammo and come back. Right. And Sundance is covering him, so it's like, okay. Maybe like they're making some the progress, and the movie just does a really good job of pacing. The no, they're not going to get out of this. Yeah. where it's like they're talking, but then it's like more of the Bolivian military is arriving, and more and mm. more. They're talking about and going so- to Australia. Right, yeah. And and it's I I was just I was really impressed by how that happened and how it was executed because it took me from this place of maybe they're going to get out of it to I don't think they're going to get out of it to okay, they know they're not going to get out of it and this is how they're choosing to spend their last moments and it was so them
4: that I was I was very moved by it. Stop. You didn't know that's how the movie ended? No. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I had a <laughs> difference between not having seen a movie and not knowing. Like you know, I knew the entire plot of Planet of the Apes thanks to like Spaceballs yeah, exactly. and The Simpsons before I ever seen it. <laughs> well, yeah, but like the end moment, the end like thirty seconds of Butch and Sundance, like that is. I mean, that's amazing. Like I love, I love when anybody can be able to watch a movie for the first time and actually not know anything about it.
0: Yeah, I think I had a, a sense generally that that's probably where it was going. But I didn't know the specifics. So when all of this was happening, it wasn't like, oh, this is definitely like they definitely die here in Bolivia in this situation. Like that was the question mark that maybe not be sure exactly what was going to happen. And so I think, yeah, again, their dialogue and that they were able to like even there's the way like, you know, Paul Newman's hand gets shot Mm -hmm. when he's going to get the ammo and Sundance, like, loads his gun for him and, like, puts it in his hand. Like, was such, like, a tender mm. moment. Uh, like, I was, I don't know, it was very, the ending was very emotional. Well,
1: they're so sweet in the way that they treat each other, like, throughout yes. the movie. Because they're, like, earlier when they're, I think, sitting up on the balcony and they're, like, just drinking and they're talking about, like, oh, I'll be Major, you know, um whatever Butch's real name is. And you'll be, you know, Bond and, and, you know, sharing about their lives. They're, they're, there's just this, real sweetness to the way that they like care about each other. And again, I think William Goldman is at his very best when he's kind of like deconstructing cultural myth. And so we see that in the princess bride where that's like a more active deconstruction of something like of a fairy tale or like a, you know, a traditional sort of like romance and he's sort of directly with the text engaging This is a story. Here's the framework of a story. But he's doing that, too, in Butch and Sundance. He's telling the story, like, as we talked about earlier, leaning hard into, like, Western genre kind of stories and, like, the myth of the outlaw, right? As these, like, hardened criminals. And, again, I think this is, like, a direct response to Bonnie and Clyde, this, like, very violent criminal's who then get their comeuppance, right? And and in Bonnie and Clyde, of course, it's notoriously gruesome and, and gory, the, the ending of that film, as they're all shot to death. You guys haven't seen that either. I can tell. You're just looking at me like... I
0: have, but I knew that that was the ending. I've seen the
2: ending.
1: Spoilers <laughs> for Bonnie and Clyde. But yeah, I think that William Goldman here is really troubling to ask, why do our stories take a certain form? What does that mean And how can we alert the audience to it in, in like a fun or sort of refreshing way um, to, to maybe interrogate the form a little bit.
2: Right. I I love any movie where the characters are genuinely sweet to each other because that's also like, most of us are nice to each other and care about each other and are sweet. And because movies have to have drama, I feel like we just mostly see people being nasty to each other in a lot of Mm -hmm. different genres and, if you can work the conflict into another part of the story, as you were saying, Tricia, it allows for the interpersonal relationships to be genuinely sweet. And I, I just and I think also when you have man, can we talk about Paul Newman for a second?
1: Yeah, <laughs> always, always. He's such
2: like the heart of this movie. And I just love him so much. And also, I was reading somewhere. This is, you know, people say this is like the handsomest bromance ever. <laughs> oh yeah like Paul Newman and Robert Redford like in their prime yeah I get that
1: except for maybe Clooney and and uh Brad Pitt in Ocean's Eleven's very very handsome bromance
2: but just kind of like almost like this the successor to this one of course it is right yeah but but man just Paul Newman I just love him so much he's got such a, a sweet soul that comes through in this film
1: and he was the huge star at the time that like was able to like get this movie made. They they really were going after Paul Newman. And then they, with Sundance, they, they kind of wanted somebody bigger. Um, They wanted Steve McQueen or Warren Beatty, you know, somebody like a, a much bigger star at the time. It was George Roy Hill that really fought for Robert Redford because he was relatively unknown. But I was watching an interview with Robert Redford recently and someone asked him like, why do you think, you know, Butch and Sundance is so beloved still? And he's like, I don't know. Maybe it's just me and Paul.
4: <laughs> I think that's it. That's cute. Uh, I mean, I think, I think if it had been Paul Newman and Steve McQueen, like they just would have stared at each other until their eyes like lasered each Warm other's fled. faces off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's too much baby blue. And in, in so much steel. <laughs> yeah. No, but I think Robert Redford gives it this, which I think Warren Beatty could have um, this like, a ruggedness that, oh, that Paul Newman doesn't be. And that is what the difference between these two characters is. And I think that I'm sure any of those actors could have pulled it off, but I think Redford just like, there's something a little scary about him. And I think it's pretty cool. It may, it maybe it's his mustache. I don't know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's such great chemistry. Cause one of them, and it's right in the first scene, you know, yep. the way, yeah. the way the Butch is trying to kind of deescalate the situation. And uh Sundance is escalating it like if there's their approach to life, you know the stubbornness and the kind of sweet talky approach right it, it's what gives them such great chemistry with each other, oh,
1: for sure,
0: that scene also does as you were saying, Brian set Sundance up as a scary person, like both right. you know he's notorious, right. we learn. And we see that he's extremely good at accuracy with his firearm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just so it does set up this kind of menace that he has inside that I feel like he doesn't really pull out again. But knowing that that's in there, I think, is is important and an interesting kind of contradiction than when you see him in his lighter moments. Right. And you do kind of see it come out a little bit with his relationship with the Catherine Ross character.
2: <laughs> right. their, their routine, their bedtime routine. So- <laughs> yes
3: sex games that was a
2: moment where I was like I was writing a message in
0: Slack I was like okay Trisha so this is what's happening right now this is the movie that you wanted us to watch
2: the protagonist is gonna do what
1: don't don't kink shame anybody on this podcast Michael <laughs> take it easy wait it's
2: not revealed as a kink until halfway through that's true (laughs) oh my god
1: it is a great sequence where you're like we will not be on board right if he actually is here to like molest this woman we're like immediately it's so confusing because we like him so much and you don't want them to be bad guys and that's again the whole thing is like we're used to this myth of this outlaw character that is like a bad guy that they like rape women and rob banks and kill people. They don't do any of that. I mean, I guess they rob banks, but, like, they're not bad guys. They're just kind of these hapless dudes, and they really care about this woman that's, you know, they treat her like a person, which so rarely where we're getting, like, a treatment of women with, you know, some agency and some of their own, like, choices. She makes a lot of choices in this movie and is, like, a real character that's, like, feels three-dimensional and again, that's not what we're expecting from the Western. And so that scene is a great example of consciously when he's sitting in the the room and like and telling her to get undressed, consciously setting up an expectation and then immediately pulling the rug out from under it, which again, they do this over and over and over again in the movie.
4: You know that one friend you have who knows way too much about movies, movie trivia, all this stuff? I'm that person in my group of friends. I don't know why I know that Kiefer Sutherland's full name is Kiefer William Frederick Dempsey George Rufus Sutherland. It's It's just something I know.
1: Too many middle names. It's too many middle (laughs) names. What?
4: Even a middle name at that (laughs) point? I mean, it's many middle names. Yeah, wow. They're all in the middle. Yeah, it's true. All right. So if you know somebody who's that person, reach out to them, tell them about the podcast. If you're that person, I feel your pain. It's weird. We're weird. Uh, but hopefully you, you have friends who you can tell about the
0: podcast. I'm really just stuck on that name. I, that name has the problem that most movies have, which is like too long of a second
4: act. Like they need to trim some things out of the right. second act of that name. It's like I need, to, I need to like pause his name in the middle of it and like go right get a drink. Clean it up. Word of mouth is the best way to get our podcast out there, get as many ears on it as possible. So tell your friends right now. Back to the episode.
0: Awesome. Why don't we go around and talk about what lessons we're going to take away from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid.
4: Brian. My lesson is about really pacing and tension and how they work together in this movie, Uh, especially the first half of the movie, but really the whole movie. You have these moments of respite, but then it just like slams you back into the next exciting, like life or death, high stakes situation. And I just found myself so entertained because it it wasn't just now we're going to go chat or we're going to watch like how we get from here to here. And a great example is them learning the line, their Spanish lines to rob the bank in Bolivia. Oh, it's
1: so good. I love and they're spending,
4: sequence. yeah, it's a great sequence. They're spending all this time learning the lines and learning, and boom, now they're in the bank and they're doing it. Like, it's just like no time. We're not like getting to the bank. We're not casing the joint, anything like that. And I just love the pacing of this movie. I love that it gives you moments to breathe. But then as soon as like right before you're ready, maybe like a second before you're ready, it smacks you into the next big the big set piece, big moment, big scene um, right from the get-go. And that goes the whole way through. And I think that's a big reason why it still is, I mean, it's still as entertaining as any movie from any year, uh, which you don't necessarily get a lot of times when you watch a movie from 50 years ago. But it just, it holds up so well. And I think that's a big part of it because it doesn't, it sort of doesn't let you relax. It only lets you relax for, Exactly as long as it wants to. And then it's right back into it.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I wonder if there's almost like a internal pacing. Right. That like movies can have. Because I think you're right. It, mm. it doesn't feel like an, like a quote unquote old movie because the pacing is exactly right for what it is trying to be. Mm-hmm. And it is always going to be. It's so it's pacing. If it's connected to what it's trying to be, is always going to feel right. Like it do, it doesn't feel like it's a movie of a time. It feels like it's a movie of itself almost. And mm. I yeah, can't really right. describe it properly. But I I definitely felt that while watching it as well.
4: There's a there's a funny thing I'll definitely never get to talk about again. So I'm going to throw it in real quick. Which is yes, the movie The Omen. There's a moment where a truck goes down a hill and glass falls off of it and completely takes his head off and there's like a slow motion spot a shot of his head spinning. And the director <laughs> said that like in test screenings, everyone covered their eyes for three seconds. So he extended mm. the shot to five seconds.
1: <laughs> and I think it's
4: sort of the same thing. It's like whatever you think the audience is going to do, then do something a little bit different so that it kind of catches them off guard, which I think is what this movie does with pacing.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And in a number of ways.
4: Yeah. Yes. <laughs>
0: Alex.
2: My lesson is just that I think, it's a great example of how you can take a a lighthearted approach to a normally like serious genre. Mm -hmm. When I think of Western, I think it's, it's usually not funny. It's usually like life and death stakes and kind of a myth of mythic proportions. Right. Right. Which will end in, you know, a really intense finale. There's not this like lighthearted joy, you know, that you, that you find in this movie. And what I think I love about it is that it both, can take that more joyful lighthearted approach and do it with a dedication to quote-unquote serious filmmaking you know like the, the cinematography is as good as any other western uh if not better like i i was thinking earlier about we were talking during our jurassic park podcast about Steven spielberg and the way he lets scenes play out with these really perfectly framed shots with you know three, four, five characters kind of moving through the frame. There were so many parts of this movie where I was just like, wow, I just love looking at this frame. I love the way he's shooting yeah. this scene. definitely." Uh, and so it it just, I, I think it's a great example of, you don't have to cheapen the filmmaking itself to take right. a lighter approach to a subject or a genre. So yeah, what a great combo of things came together in this film and really, really loved it.
1: And I love that you're calling that out Alex because you know this movie was nominated for 7 Oscars I think and it won like 5 of them um and it is a comedy like we don't often mm-hmm. treat comedy in like the discourse right or film criticism as like worthy filmmaking or serious filmmaking in the way that you're talking about Alex and yet because the filmmaking here is is absolutely top tier art form it's just the light touch on the comedy it's exactly what you're talking about you it's not sacrificing anything in the filmmaking just because you're making a comedy it's not a spoof you know right it's it's still a real western and it looks like a real western and it treats itself seriously even though the characters don't take it seriously at all
2: yeah i love that combination
4: yeah i think when you watch a movie that is A comedy, like this is a comedy, like knocked up or something. You're like, okay, I need to be laughing every second. So, like, everything's going to be funny. But, like, Lord of the Rings is hilarious. No Country for Old Men is hilarious. Like, sometimes the funniest movies are the ones that aren't labeled as comedies, but they're still completely comedy. They're just not like of the comedy genre, but they're still like, they're just delightful to watch because of how funny they are.
1: I'll kind of spin this into my lesson, but my sort of lesson here is about the comedy, because it's not jokes. In a recent podcast, and I'm trying to remember which one it was, maybe you guys can help me. I was talking about, oh, I think it was Parasite. But we were talking about like the comedy of movement where you take too much effort or too little effort Mm -hmm. to do Mm -hmm. something. But all comedy is sort of based on that, like you're not having an appropriate response, right? So this thing is like you're going to jump off a cliff and you're going to get killed probably. But your response is not appropriate to that right your response is like well we're gonna die anyway or you know we're just joking about like can we swim or not swim or or, you know whatever that's funny it's not a joke it's that the situation is in contrast to the character's reactions to it
3: Mm.
1: and it's the same throughout this movie where the guys aren't responding appropriately at all so like in, in that opening scene where butch is going you know just why don't you just like invite us to stay just invite us to stick around you don't get the sense that anyone's actually going to get shot, but they could. Mm-hmm. But Butch's reaction is just this like very kind of lighthearted thing. Um, and that's where all the comedy arises here. And I really, really like that as an approach to writing comedy, especially as someone who who's not good at writing jokes. <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm quite bad at writing jokes, but if there's a situation that calls for seriousness, then you just have characters that don't. I mean, and it reminds me, honestly, and we've talked about this, the dynamic in motions 11, where they kind mm-hmm. of have their own language and they mm-hmm. kind of like understand each other perfectly. They they are on the same wavelength in the way that they respond to what's happening around them. And that also helps to create that feeling of intimacy between the two.
0: Yeah, like like all the comedy is rooted in character and what we know about the characters and the context. And, and I feel like there's even like a self-awareness in the comedy. Like I think Paul Newman knows he's being funny when he's saying these things, but like... It's, but he still means it. Like there's a lot of like layers happening all at once. And none of them are just like, we're going to press the funny button. Like it's, it's more right. Right. Intricate than that. And I think that's what makes it this more joyful, delightful experience that brings us into the movie.
4: Yeah. I know I mentioned on a previous podcast that like, I like when characters make other characters laugh when like they are, Mm -hmm. someone makes a joke Mm -hmm. and the other character appreciates the joke. And then you have, a character is making a joke and they know they're making a joke, even if nobody else is laughing at it. And I think so much comedy is the other thing, which is characters are making jokes for the audience, but not in the world. And that is weird sometimes because you're like, but you're saying something absurd, but nobody around you recognizes that it's absurd and you don't recognize that it's absurd. And sometimes that doesn't work as well as like a character is funny and they know they're funny and they're being funny and like, you can appreciate that. And sometimes other characters in the movie can appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really cool distinction.
0: Yeah, my lesson I, I kind of became crystallized as we were talking and listening to everyone share their thoughts. And I think, Trisha, you made it concise nicely in, in talking about that there are things that could be plot moments raised like this love triangle. Like they they bring up this idea of you know, what if we had met each other first? Would we have been involved? They bring that up, but then it doesn't come back. So it's just it's a thing that we have in our head, and and lots of other examples that you you guys were giving of basically using things that could be plot points in another movie. Like if the story was about something else, raising these plot points, uh, but using them kind of simply as character development there's just something and and i think you know there's this sort of meta aspect that we were talking about also where it's because we know what that movie could look like we kind of already know what that where that avenue could lead so we can have that in the back of our heads but rather than having the actual plot of the film go on that path it's sort of just like audience keep keep this in mind as information you have about the characters as we move forward in the plot that's actually happening. Right. Right. It's a hard thing to describe, but I, I feel like that's hearing that out loud made me realize that's what was so impressive to me about this film. Was that the the character involvement and development was done in this different way than almost every other film I've seen and it, it made it something really special and created its own kind of weight to the characters such that by the end I was really emotionally invested, even though there wasn't really moments that i could point to and say like at this moment i became emotionally invested in this character because they gave a monologue about their backstory or anything like that right right yeah so it's just very effortlessly created with probably a ton of effort
1: one thing i really love is the ambiguity here the Mm -hmm. movie doesn't tell you how to feel
3: Mm -hmm. it doesn't
1: like force you to to laugh anymore That it forces you to be sad it's not trying to hit you over the head with a hammer. It's more interested in raising questions about this myth of this outlaw and the old West and, and raising questions about relationships and and friendship and monogamy potentially. And like, it's more interested in, in, inviting you into the story that you're sort of free to find yourself in or just sort of like let wash over you it has a lot of respect for the audience and I think that's why it was so delightful at the time it just it absolutely didn't make you feel a certain way because otherwise there's some kind of like the movie doesn't act like it has an imperative right or yeah and honestly critics hated this movie (laughs) They, they really panned it when it first came out and it took a couple weeks for it to like sort of catch on and like Mm. spread by word of mouth and stuff like that. And of course, eventually like won a bunch of Oscars, but because it doesn't. Do the exact thing we're talking about. It doesn't beat you over the head with its cinematic form or whatever it's trying to be.
0: Well, and the plot is so simple. It's as, so simple. Like, as we've yes. talked about before. Like, I, I don't feel like I need to resolve my feelings about their love triangle because it doesn't. It's not going to affect what's happening. Right. This movie navigates that with just the lightest of touches. That I think is, is mm-hmm. a really hard to pull off but yeah. it, it does and it's really enjoyable
1: it helps to have actors with like this much chemistry too like, yeah it's so good
0: yeah like dripping with chemistry this is one of those times where i was like okay i get it those are those are handsome people i understand <laughs> right. I, yeah. I i
4: understand
1: <laughs> paul newman unquestionably the most beautiful man who's ever lived in my also a little looks a little like
4: mcconaughey in this movie so you kind of have like a brad pitt mcconaughey like i'm
1: not sure about that so
4: much better than mcconaughey i'm not talking about quality of look i'm talking about (laughs) similarity (laughs) i saw some leo at first but maybe also because once upon a time in hollywood not literal Leo, i mean right i know but when i think paul newman i think paul newman of the last 20 years i don't think you don't think cool but...
1: hand luke why wouldn't you immediately think cool hand luke which was right before this
4: because i've seen him more recently in more recent things <laughs> oh my god like the front of my dressing i'm not gonna way. do
1: this because it would be just like the daddest move of all time but i should pick cool hand luke for our next movie if i'd love to i love that movie <laughs> which i'm sure michael hasn't seen is
0: that a prequel for,
2: like luke skywalker is it that... It's a, it's a different look. Oh, uh, I wish I it's was in the same room as you so I could hit you. It's a different look. My, my first note on my notepad thing for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is just Paul Newman, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> what a face. What a, what a face. face. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Why don't we go around and say what we've
0: been watching? Brian, take us away.
4: All right. Uh, I'm going to cheat a little because last time I talked about uh, Firefly and finished firefly and watched serenity the movie and normally that wouldn't be interesting to talk about a second time but it really brought up something that we've talked about before which is expectation uh and i saw serenity the first time in the theater when i had not seen firefly so i had a friend who was a big firefly fan he's like, I want to go see this movie. And my other friend and I were like, okay. And then we saw it and we're like, oh, that was pretty bad. Like that was just, that looked like a TV actors in a TV written thing with like a movie budget. Like that was not good. And he was like, but, 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 and we're like, no. And of course we had no context for these characters of this world.
3: Mm. And then
4: a couple years later, I actually watched Firefly. And then at the end of that, of course I watched Serenity and I was like, damn it now i dislike it for a different reason i like firefly <laughs> is a space western and like has this like used future kind of feel to it and then serenity is like more just a Uh, just a a sci-fi movie like it doesn't Mm. sort of have the western quality it doesn't kind of have the used future quality because they had the budget so everything looked it's almost like watching star wars and then watching the prequels where it's like oh everything's like shiny now yeah Mm. not shiny the definition of that word from the firefly universe um and uh and then like finally now when i watch firefly and then watch serenity i'm like okay yeah the characters feel a little different things are a little different but like I'm glad that this thing exists. It's a nice closure to everything, but it's that weird expectation thing that I've talked about before, where it's like you have your first impression and then your second impression is sort of based on your first impression. And then finally, like sometimes you have to see something like three times before you kind of settle into like, okay, I know what this thing is now. Now I can just watch it for what it is and not be so concerned with what I wanted it to be. Um, And now I really enjoy the movie. And after like disliking it, The first two times i saw it for different (laughs) reasons so i just thought it was interesting so i felt like it was worth bringing up on here
1: well we'll have to have a joss Whedon conversation sometime bry there you go yeah
4: indeed trisha
1: so i watched the new version of emma that just came out. Um, oh, cool! You can. Oh, yeah, BOD. You can. Yes, exactly. It's on BOD, directed by Autumn de who is a wonderful director, mostly with a background in like music videos. So I was like mm. really excited to see what she was going to do with this classic story that I'm really familiar with. I love the Gwyneth Paltrow version from the mid '90s. I really, really love that version of Emma, and so I was excited to see this. It's got Anya Taylor Joy, Johnny Flynn, Bill Nighy, and Josh O'Connor, who I love from the most recent season of The Crown it's just such a fun watch like it's just a lovely comedy um you know sort of this like classic drawing room kind of comedy um of manners in a uh, in a way and um Emma the character is one of the most enduring if you've seen the movie Clueless that's like an adaptation of this same story Mm -hmm. so like the Alicia Silverstone character Cher is the emma character
0: is paul rudd in this
1: paul rudd is not in this i'm, I'm very fun. sad to report but but everyone else everyone that's in it is great it's just really fun it's just a delight and it's kind of the perfect thing to watch right now when we're all just in our houses and something that's fun and beautifully like beautifully filmed really inventive direction gorgeous costumes anya taylor joy is delightful
2: very cool alex so my husband and I have been watching Little Fires Everywhere on Hulu.
1: Ooh, I need to see that.
2: So yeah, it's based on uh, the novel by Celeste Ng and uh it's kind of like I describe it as like Big Little Lies light <laughs> in some ways but different, you know, dealing with different issues. It it explores a lot of themes around race and motherhood. It takes place in Shaker Heights, which was the first like integrated community in America. It takes place in the 90s, so it's not like when it first was planned, mm-hmm. but like There's kind of the, just a lot of interesting themes about like, you know, the rich white people being really proud of like, we're like a really non-racist community, but also, you know, it's America in the 90s, so it still totally is. So there's a lot of interesting themes explored in it, but it does still have kind of the, it's like, it's that Hulu middle ground where it's like big little lies on HBO had like a, like more of authorial vision from a director and kind of felt like more like a, a big long movie. And this feels still kind of more like a cable TV show, but it's Reese Witherspoon playing kind of her big little lies character Carrie washington uh so it's a fun watch, and it's definitely once you get into it, all the secrets start coming out, and it's juicy and soapy and so if, if you're into that uh it's it's not a bad way to spend your your quarantine
4: nice,
1: nice, nice. Yeah, I really love the book. I'm gonna check it out.
2: Awesome. Well, so over the past
0: several years, at this point, I've been making my way through Harry Potter mostly via the audiobooks, and I'm finally in the last several chapters of of book seven. What a journey! Indeed, it's it's really interesting. Kind of like you were talking about Brian of like expectations, and you know, I'd seen all the movies before reading the books, knowing the movies. I think is really obviously influenced how I've received each book and made me appreciate some more than others. And most of book seven has been kind of a slog for me, actually, because of the movies, I think. But now mm. it's getting to the finale and it's picking up speed. There's nothing new here that I'm going to say, like Harry Potter is good. You should read it. I'm obviously not the first person to, what is to, Harry to say that. Um, but I think the thing that I'm so impressed by is there's a lot of books, especially kind of young adult books that get recommended, where maybe the story is kind of an interesting like premise, but the execution is maybe not you know as spectacular as you would hope it to be, and I've just been really impressed with how spectacular the execution has been by j k. Rowling, and enough that I think it's it's striking to me because I don't read a lot of narrative fiction books like I have a lot of trouble getting through narrative fiction and so Mm. this this has been the one that has drawn me in and the way it's written makes things that could be problems okay because of how she brings you into the story and stuff. Mm. So basically I'm just, I'm reporting in case Mm. anyone is wondering (laughs) that Harry (laughs) Harry Potter is good.
2: (laughs) They are good books that are enjoyable to read.
0: Which I think for those of us that did not read them when they came out, there is kind of that lingering question of like, okay, but like, really though, are they like, okay, yes, I know everyone loves them, but like, is it really good? Uh, And it is, it's, it's very good. And it's, it's worth your time. 100%.
1: Just such an achievement when you get to the end and like, all of the threads and characters and like world stuff and mm-hmm. like lore and like everything comes together and like pays off. It's just like immaculately plotted and executed those books.
0: Well, and tracking it, because I, I think, especially reading it as an adult, everyone I've talked to about it, you know, read it when they were kids. And so they were, there's a, I think a, a vision of perfection that one can have when one as a child, but reading them as an adult, I feel like I've seen more of the like, well, I don't think this was actually planned out from the beginning, but the way she handled the evolution Mm -hmm. from where it starts to where it ends is amazing. So just as a as a writer and a storyteller, I think there are tons of lessons to be gleaned just from experiencing that transition happening. Absolutely. Anyway, Harry Potter, thumbs up This has been our conversation on Witch Cassidy and Sunset. Nope. Nope.
3: (laughs) That
2: happens. Brown hogs days.
3: Yes.
1: Oh, I so hoped it would happen. (laughs) <laughs>
2: the sunset Strip Ugh,
1: It's so close to
0: Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip Which Cassidy and the Sundance Kid Anyway, thank you everyone for Listening, thank you to all the patrons For supporting the show and making it Possible, thank you for listening And we'll see you next time, bye Bye everybody, bye